Welcome to the first episode of our podcast's third season, Scary But True Campfire Stories, brought to you by Dudes Camping. Hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening, and please, spread the word, tell your friends, tell your neighbor, post it on Facebook, Twitter X, Instagram, Truth Social, TikTok, and any other social media outlet that gathers all your personal information and sells it to the highest bidder. Our goal is to share true stories of strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, conspiracy, or just unexplained supernatural story and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. Driving on a lonely road in New Hampshire, watching a falling star that turns out to be watching you. Being chased by an unknown aircraft only to get away and realize you are missing two hours of time. This sounds like the beginning of a Hollywood UFO abduction movie, but this happens to be the first reported case in 1961. In this first episode of a two-part series, we will explore the events of the most famous UFO abduction in history. The research in this episode relies heavily upon the book Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience by Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin, and can be found on Amazon. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction. On the night of September 19th through the 20th, 1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of lost time while driving south on Route 3 near Lincoln. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day, but were not public with their story until it was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. These words are written on a plaque at the Indian Head Center in Lincoln, New Hampshire. The story was originally published in The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller in 1966. This episode leans heavily on the updated version of the story titled Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience by Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Marden. The Betty and Barney Hill UFO case is not only considered the most famous UFO abduction to date, but it is also considered one of the most credible cases to come out at a time when Otherworldly beings were giving spiritual messages of peace and harmony. George Adamski's encounter was the first widespread account where he was allegedly visited by Nordic aliens who gave him a New Age message and would take him on space tours of planets and galaxies. Allegedly being the key word. Adamski was a contactee, while Betty and Barney were the first abductees that we are aware of. The difference being that contactees tend to have a good time. Abductees don't. 
There are several reasons why the Hill case has stood the test of time. Not only because it was the first widely reported case, but because it was extremely well documented with official military data to support it. Probably before the government realized they should hide everything from the public. There are many unique details about this case. The terrifying appearance of the aliens, the strange star map that was shown to Betty, the painful experiments that were done to the couple, the visitations of men in black, and poltergeist occurrences in their house afterwards. This encounter took place nearly 63 years ago and has had ample time to undergo scrutiny and ridicule. The detractors and debunkers have had a field day, claiming everything from false memories to psychoanalysis of the Freudian kind. Barack Obama is currently doing a special for Netflix on this case. Most people have heard about the case, but have never really heard the real story. I have taken the minutest details and tried to retell the story from Betty and Barney's perspective. There are several audio tapes of the hypnosis sessions that were too graphic and emotional to release to the public. Understandably, the Hills never released them. This is what happened on the night of September 19th and 20th, 1961. The Abduction of Betty and Barney Hill Betty and I were on an impromptu honeymoon trip to Niagara Falls. I wanted to surprise her with something special. We'd been married for 16 months now, but still lived quite a distance apart. I was working for the U.S. Post Office and had recently been transferred from Philadelphia to Boston still 60 miles from where Betty lived in Portsmouth. I asked for a little time off, and when it was granted, I told Betty to pack her things. We are going to Canada. We decided we were going to book a hotel while we were in Montreal on Tuesday and take in the nightlife of the bustling city. Somehow, I asked a man who didn't speak English for directions, and I couldn't understand a single French word he said. I tried to interpret his hand motions, but that just made me more confused, and we ended up getting lost. I figured if we drove to the outskirts of the city, maybe we could find a motel. I came across a few places, but they weren't even close to downtown, so I kept driving east. As we were driving, we heard on the radio that the tropical storm Esther was whirling its way up the east coast toward New Hampshire. We decided we better just try and drive the whole way home. We wanted to avoid this storm, even if it meant driving into the early morning hours. Betty and I agreed that if I got too tired... We would stop in New Hampshire's White Mountains for the night. I'd driven on Route 3 several times before, and tonight was mostly clear. The moon was very bright, but not quite full. We were just enjoying the beautiful night drive in our 1957 Chevy with our rescue dog, Delsey, lazily lounging in the back seat. Betty pointed up at the sky and said, Oh, Barney, look, a falling star. I remember seeing falling stars when I was a kid, and remembered that they would streak by very fast. So fast, in fact, that you were lucky to even see one. I looked out the windshield and saw a slow-moving star or a comet. As I watched, it stopped and suddenly began to climb upward. Not a star, I thought. It's just a plane. Betty thought it was a satellite. I kept my eyes on the road, and Betty continued to observe our friendly satellite. All of a sudden, she whispers, What? 
I look at her and ask the same thing. What? Well, it just changed course. It was going towards the moon and it just stopped. Pull over so we can get a better look. I needed a break to stretch my legs anyway, so I pulled over and we got out of the car. I looked up in the sky and my eyes immediately fell on the satellite. Betty had a pair of binoculars and was watching this thing very closely. She seemed dumbfounded and said that it had an irregular and inconsistent flight pattern. We watched it travel across the face of the moon, and no star could do that. It had to be a conventional airliner or something. She handed me the binoculars, and I noticed that this thing was now going the opposite direction that it was a second ago. As a matter of fact, it looked like it was rapidly descending in our direction. Now, I'm a pragmatic thinker, so I told Betty, yeah, it's just a conventional airliner on its way to Canada. I looked back through the binoculars and started to question that statement. Conventional airliners don't move in patterns like this. Airliner or not, I walked around to the rear of the Chevy and grabbed Betty's handgun out of the trunk. I had no intentions of actually using it, nor did I check to see if it was loaded. There was always a chance of bears roaming around these parts, and I could see a couple of trash barrels close by. It was more the thought of its presence in the car as we drove. We got back in the car, and I glanced at my watch to get an estimate of how long it would take to get us home. My watch read close to midnight, so I estimated another three-hour drive on Route 3. Betty just couldn't take her eyes off this thing, and I was carefully switching between watching the road and looking up trying to rationalize what it could be. It kept changing direction, ascending and descending, and occasionally it would just hover motionless in the sky. Such a fascinating mystery. But it was probably some airliner or satellite that was fooling us into thinking it was something else. I thought maybe we should just get a cabin for the night, but we continued driving. Every now and then we would stop to watch this thing. It seemed to be descending closer to our location, but still kept its erratic, jerky flight patterns. There's a natural granite rock formation near Indian Head that resembles a Native American profile just south of the valley through Franconia Notch. As we drove around the very wide curve that took us straight toward it, I looked and saw something unbelievable. There in front of us was a flattened, circular, cigar-shaped disc just hovering. It just came out of nowhere, or else I wasn't paying attention. We were searching for a moving light in the sky, and here, this thing right in front of us was about 80 to 100 feet above our vehicle. I slammed on the brakes in complete astonishment. I grabbed the binoculars from Betty as she let out a cry. Barney, what the heck is that? I opened the car door with the lights on and the car still running. I used the car and the door to stabilize the binoculars. It was floating right over the road in front of us. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This craft was 60 to 80 feet wide. It looked like a giant pancake with lights and windows floating in the air. It had a double row of rectangular windows going across its rim. As I looked through the viewfinder, this craft moved without making a sound away from us and stopped right above the treetops in a field to the right. I shut the door and looked around the area. We were completely alone on this two-lane highway. 
not another car in sight. I quickly walked around the front of the car and motioned to Betty, Stay near the car. I'm going to get a closer look. She nervously blurted out, Barney, what is it? Is it an airplane? I don't know. I don't know. I'll be right back, I said as I walked off the road and into the field. I put my hand on the gun inside my pants pocket just to reassure myself that I would be safe. I was wearing a nice pair of dress shoes with slacks and a jacket. I didn't consider the terrain I was walking on now. I could feel the ground was soft but not muddy as I walked through the fields towards this thing. As I got close to it, I watched these things come out of the sides like fins or wings and form a V-shape. Each side had a red light at its tip and it slightly tilted toward me at a 45-degree angle. My thoughts were racing because I didn't know how to rationalize this thing. I've never seen an airliner look or act like this. It had to be a military helicopter. I lifted the binoculars to my eyes and looked through the windows. I was close enough now to see what looked like people moving about inside. They were wearing glossy black leather uniforms. They had what looked like black caps with short bills on them. They moved with purpose and had the precision of military officers. I noticed the craft was moving, so I lowered the binoculars to look directly at it. It was tilting more towards me, as if it was aiming those two red lights, and then it began to descend in my direction. I looked back through the binoculars and saw that these people moving about the ship were humanoid, but I don't think they were human. These people, or creatures or whatever, were bustling back and forth, but there was one who just stood at the window. He was looking out into the distance. No, he was looking directly at me. I looked at him, and I could feel as if he was speaking to me through my mind. All of a sudden, I knew that I was in trouble. I was about to be taken from this field like a rabbit plucked out from his hiding place. I was suddenly overcome with fear. I don't believe it, I cried. It took everything I had to tear the binoculars from my face and muster all my courage to move from that spot. I turned and raced back to the car, not even paying attention to what I might kick or stumble on in the dark. I ran around the front of the Chevy, hysterically laughing and shouted to Betty, Get in the car! Get in now! We need to get out of here now! now! What is it, Barney? What did you see? We need to get out of here. <laughs> we could all be captured. We both got in the car and slammed the doors. I threw the clutch in the gear and we sped away from that thing as fast as our 57 Chevy would go. I don't know why, but I was so scared that I started laughing. Our dog Delsey was in the back sticking his head over the seat to see what the fuss was about. Betty was trying to peer out the window in the direction we just came from while I was focused on the road. <laughs> there had to be some natural explanation for what I just saw, but I couldn't rationalize it. It'll come to me later, what that thing really was, but we needed to get out of there immediately. As I was speeding down the highway, I heard Betty turn around and point directly overhead out the front windshield and say, There it is. Oh, God, Barney, what is that? It's got to be a military helicopter or something. Why is it following us? I had the accelerator pushed all the way to the floor so the car was going as fast as it could. What is this thing? I kept asking myself. Suddenly, 
There was a buzzing tone that sounded like tuning forks bouncing off the trunk. There was kind of a rhythmic pattern to it. Betty turned around to see what it was. She didn't say a word but had a puzzled look on her face as she looked out the rear window. There was nothing out the ordinary on her trunk. I just kept my hands on the wheel, concentrating on the road. Then, out of nowhere, I felt something very strange. This vibrating sensation that seemed to penetrate to my bones. It was extremely intense, but gradually diminished. Or I started to get used to it, I don't know. I saw a side road coming up on my left, so I made a rapid left-hand turn. I'm not really sure why I did this. Maybe I figured I could lose this thing somehow. As soon as I turned, I saw a fiery orb by the side of the road, like an orange moon just sitting in front of us. I raised my arm to my eyes and screamed out, Oh no, not again. It was like this thing was blocking the road, so I thrust the car in reverse and continued back on the highway. Betty and I kept driving without saying a word to each other, when again I heard the rhythmic buzzing sound on the back of the car. We drove for a little while just trying to find an open restaurant or a diner or a gas station or something. Somewhere between the floating moon and Concord, a gradual calm overcame us and we just drove right through Concord and picked up Route 4. We were scheduled to arrive in Portsmouth at 3 a.m., but for some reason, we entered the city limits just as the sun was rising. We pulled into the driveway and I slowly got out of the car. I wasn't focused on the terror of being chased by a strange ball of light, but surprisingly calm and glad to be home. I opened the front door and turned on the lights. Betty walked over to the window, opened the blinds, and looked up at the sky. I walked over, put my arm around her, and just stood there, both of us looking up. Somehow, I'd almost forgotten about the incident, but I knew... Something strange had happened. I really couldn't rationalize it, but knew that in time it would make sense. We just stood there for several minutes, then I said, This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. I wasn't quite sure what happened to me, but I knew something extraordinary happened. I wondered if I would ever see that thing or its occupants again. We sat down at a kitchen table and I looked at my watch. It wasn't working, so I looked at Betty's. Hers wasn't working either. We must have forgotten to wind them. I looked up at the clock on the wall. It was just after 5 a.m. That's strange, I said. We got home a lot later than we were supposed to. We were both relaxed and calm, but I felt very clammy, like I hadn't slept or showered in three days. I looked at Betty and she was in a daze looking at an imaginary spot on the table. She must have noticed me staring at her when she looked into my eyes. I shook my head and she asked me, Do you believe what just happened to us? No, I replied, still shaking my head. No, I don't believe what just happened. But, I sighed, it definitely happened. I put my hands on the edge of the table to steady myself as I rose. I was definitely in need of some restorative sleep. I need a shower, I said as I made my way to the bedroom. Me too. What about our stuff in the car, she asked me. I turned to her and said, let me take a shower first. I'll bring it in while you take a shower. 
As I was undressing, Betty blurted out, Honey, maybe you can just leave all this stuff on the porch. It just feels weird. Normally I would laugh at such an absurd idea because we both knew it was going to rain. But the circumstance convinced me that she was probably right. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. We both showered. I left our luggage and stuff on a back porch, and we decided to get a little sleep. Maybe a nap will set my mind at ease. I'll be able to think clearly about this encounter after I wake up. After a brief nap, Betty made some coffee and we sat at the table just staring into our cups. I couldn't stop thinking about this incident, and I barely slept at all. I have a suggestion, I said. First of all, there has to be a logical explanation for this. Let's go into separate rooms and try to draw the plane or object or whatever it is we saw. I want to make sure that I'm not just making this up. Betty looked at me with deep empathy and said so sweetly, Honey, you are not making this up. I saw it too. You are not crazy. I'm not crazy. Well, that's a good start. I'll go in the bedroom and you stay here at the table. Let me know when you're done. I got up and grabbed a pencil and a piece of paper. I drew the object as best I could, with the windows, the flaps that came out the sides, the red lights and the flattened cigar shape of it all. It took me about ten minutes, then I just stared at my drawing. Betty finished her drawing in about twenty minutes, and I heard her call my name. I walked out of the bedroom and laid my drawing next to hers. Hers was so similar to mine that it made me shudder. Hardly any differences, and I was able to get a closer look with the binoculars. I lifted my head and told her, We can't tell anybody about this, Betty. Why not? We saw something amazing, Barney. I know, I know, but nobody's going to believe us. We are an interracial couple, and people already look down on us. Betty, you have to trust me on this. We need to tell somebody. This is fantastic. What if there are more people who have seen something like this? My sister Janet saw a UFO before. I have to tell her. Okay, dear. Just your sister. I'll call the Air Force tomorrow and just make sure it wasn't one of their test planes or something that we misidentified. Other than that, no one. Please. Okay, honey. As the day went on, I began to feel very apprehensive. Betty was losing her feeling of peace, and I heard her telling her sister on the phone about our encounter. Little did I know that the one person she told would balloon into her whole family finding out. Betty's sister told us that we needed to report our UFO site in the Peace Air Force Base. She also mentioned some sort of experiment for Betty to do on the car. Now, this was just getting out of hand. I'll call the Air Force Base tomorrow and be done with this whole thing. It wasn't 45 minutes after Betty got off the phone with her sister that she came running in the house hysterical, going on about the car and how I need to come out and see this. She seemed quite terrified over something. It was raining, and I had no desire to see some unrelated coincidence that her sister put in her head. I wanted to just forget the whole thing, so I refused to go outside in the rain. She was so persistent that I knew I had to at least humor her as a husband.
So I reluctantly grabbed an umbrella and walked outside. It was dark, but the car was still visible under the streetlights. She pointed to some spots on the car. What are those? I asked. They were highly polished spots where the rain wasn't beating, about the size of silver dollars. They weren't there before. I don't know what they are, but Barney, she said, I know that they shouldn't do this. She proceeded to place a compass directly on top of one of the spots, and the needle started spinning. I was puzzled, but as usually a good explanation for everything. Maybe the compass is bad. I moved the compass to a spot that didn't look polished. It stopped spinning and pointed in the direction I knew was southeast. What in the world? I looked up at the sky. Oh, it's got to be the rain, I replied as I closed the umbrella and just stood in the slight downpour. Barney, she scolded me, you know it's not the rain. We did this on each of the different spots and the compass did the same thing on every one. We even asked our neighbors who lived upstairs to try it. Maybe we were doing something wrong. They saw it too and were just as confounded as us. We did this experiment with Betty's family when they came over the next day. Same thing. We went back inside the house after the initial experiment and I checked my watch again. It still wasn't working even after winding it earlier. Great, I said. My watch is dead. Mine is too, Betty replied. I tried winding it before I showered and it won't work. At first, I didn't correlate this with our encounter. My first thought was, now we had another expense to deal with, getting our watches fixed. As we got ready for bed, I heard Betty give a groan of disappointment as she was putting a dress away. What is it? I asked. Oh, she sighed. My new blue dress is torn, and look how dirty it is. I walked over to our closet and saw that the zipper had been ripped off the seam near the edge, and it was torn in spots. There was also what looked like a pink powdery substance on certain spots. As I was looking at her dress, my eyes dropped down to the shoes I'd been wearing. They were completely ruined. What? I shouted. What happened to my shoes? I picked them up, and the front toes were completely scuffed and destroyed. How did this happen? The next day, I had Betty call the Air Force Base in Newington, New Hampshire, she made an official report on September 21, 1961. They interviewed us both, and we told him exactly what we saw. Well, I left out the parts about the humanoid figures I saw in the windows and how they communicated with me. They didn't need to know any of that. A little later, we got a call from Major Paul Henderson, who asked us even more questions. He seemed to be very interested in the wings that came out of the side with the red lights. I told him everything I could remember because, for some reason, he didn't seem surprised. He seemed to believe me. Well, that was reassuring. He even called us back the next day saying that he'd been up all night working on a report and he needed some more information. They were taking his report very seriously. The following weeks began to weigh heavy on us and we had trouble sleeping and couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't shake the feeling that something terrible had happened. Something more than just being chased by a strange helicopter. 
our dog Delcy became very ill, and we were not financially prepared to take care of her, but we worked it out. She was also exhibiting strange behaviors, whimpering, shaking, and frantically moving her legs as if running in her sleep. Betty went to the library and started looking up stuff on UFOs. She came across a book called The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by a Major Donald Kehoe, the director of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. This was Betty's first introduction to this strange world. It gave her a sense of support as she realized that we weren't the first or the only people to experience unidentified flying objects. I saw a change of reassurance in my wife, and I look forward to getting back to our lives. Forget about this whole thing. Focus on my job, our social life, our political activism with the civil rights movement. But I could not shake the anxiety that something terrifying had happened. Something more than just seeing a strange craft. My fears were confirmed when ten days after our encounter, Betty started having nightmares. I still worked in Boston and my daily commute was almost three hours a day. I would get home early in the morning and see a distressed Betty writing down her nightmares in a journal. She was having flashbacks of our encounter, except they would turn into horrific events of her being abducted. She was extremely disturbed by these dreams and figured that if she wrote them down, it would help relieve the pressure. She didn't want me to read them because they were so terrifying. This just added to my mounting anxiety the situation. Betty reached out to Major Kehoe, who contacted and informed us that he and Walter Webb would be doing a scientific investigation into our case. We were interviewed by the investigators on November 25th and the questions they asked, Betty and I realized that we were missing almost two hours of time. I remember that we were supposed to arrive home at around three, but ended up getting home at five, and that our watches, which we had thrown away at this point, both stopped working, and we didn't even think about it. Our friend James McDonald suggested during this meeting that we consider hypnosis as a means of uncovering what we couldn't remember. He used to work for the CIA and said that they had used it before. Dr. Kehoe could get us the contact number of a certain Dr. Benjamin Simon. Occasionally, we would drive to the spots in the White Mountains to try to jog our memories of the event. We found a road that I had made a hard left and saw the fiery orb, but it didn't do anything to help us remember anything else. That evening, we arrived home, unlocked the door, and Betty entered the kitchen. She let out a loud gasp. I quickly ran in to see what had happened. Was something wrong with Delcy? I walked in to see a pile of dried brown leaves dumped in the middle of our table. Betty looked at me in puzzlement. I had no response. I checked all the doors and windows. They were all locked. Somehow, somebody was able to break into our house, leave a mess of leaves on our table, then lock all the doors and windows before they left. I checked the safe and our jewelry. As I was making sure nothing had been ransacked, I heard Betty call my name. I went back into the kitchen, and she was standing there with some crushed leaves in her hand, along with the blue earrings that she took on our trip to Canada. I looked at them, and then up to her confused face. Are those 
Yes, she answered before I could finish. The earrings I was wearing on the night of our encounter. I didn't even know they were missing. But how? I said. This was getting to be too much. I felt extremely violated that somebody would enter our house like this. I didn't think we should inform the police because this was just too weird. That weekend, Betty and I had deadbolt locks installed on all the doors. One night I was driving to work when suddenly I saw what looked like a roadblock ahead of me. As soon as I got close enough to see people standing around and the blazing lights that penetrated the darkness, I had such a paralyzing fear that I turned the car around and drove back home, swearing to myself the whole way. I could not explain my actions. Betty and I realized that simple, normal events were inducing terror in us and causing us to have extreme fear. We were having trouble just maintaining our everyday routines. We both started having repressed memories spontaneously returned to us. It was debilitating and discouraging. Betty and I agreed that we needed help. We had to take the next step and talk to somebody that could help us, help us find our lost memories and reconcile our missing time. We reached out to Dr. Benjamin Simon. We needed answers. Stanton Friedman considers this one of the most important UFO cases ever investigated. He believed it was the first abduction case to receive such a thorough investigation with credible witnesses who were willing to go on file with what they saw. Betty and Barney Hill reported the incident the day after the event. There happened to be a Navy report of a UFO that coincided with the Hill's testimony on the same day of the incident. Their call to Major Henderson was reported to Project Blue Book on the official form 112. Also in this report was a strange incident that occurred on their radars September 20th. Air Force personnel observed an unidentified aircraft on precision approach radar four miles out from the control tower. This would have been the exact area that Betty and Barney were driving through. They monitored the craft and it was certified by Captain Robert Doheday. The Air Force wrote it off as resulting from strong inversion and was probably an advertising searchlight. Yeah, right. At 11 p.m. or later? In a sparsely populated area? The official Blue Book report assigned this sighting under insufficient data. Betty and Barney did not want their story to be publicized. It only became mainstream when a dubious journalist obtained a copy of an interview and published it in the Boston Traveler without their permission, even against their wishes. Over the years, the truth in the Betty and Barney Hill case has been suppressed, and disinformation has been added to muddy the issue. As Betty and Barney sought out answers, they came to realize that the two hours of missing time were filled with terror and unspeakable events. Join us for part two, where we will uncover the lost memories of the hills, description of the alien beings, a frightful abduction, experiments carried out on Betty and Barney, and what do they mean? A star map that was shown to Betty, and how only recently have they been able to locate it in the sky.
Are they really visiting us from the Zeta Reticuli star system? Are these creatures here to help us? Or are they here to harvest us for something else? We will discuss these and many other questions in Part 2 of the most famous UFO abduction case in history, the Betty and Barney Hill story. Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping. Narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Do you have a story that needs to be told? Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your scary but true story, and we'll consider it for broadcast. Please, hit the like button and subscribe if you enjoyed this story and leave a comment. It really does help us out. If you were offended by any of the portrayals in this story or felt that we were appropriating culture in any way, please visit www.uraloser.com and leave a message. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.